Have you heard of the Torah coming out of Berlin? I've spent the last six years of my life studying in Batemi Drash, houses of study in New York and Jerusalem. But the Torah that's coming out of Berlin has its own unique power. Volunteers and activists, rabbis and students, the Jews of Berlin have a thirst that cannot be quenched, a curiosity that cannot be satiated. They want to learn and they want to create. The Torah of Berlin is different and strange and the whole idea can be a little uncomfortable, but it's a Torah that draws you in and makes you see your own life and your own Judaism in a whole new way. So come and learn. Welcome to Torah Curious. I am your host, Jeremy Borbitz. And we are joined today by the amazing, the elegant, the brilliant Nina Peretz. Nina, thank you for joining us. Hi, Jeremy. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, of course. Uh, Nina, I wonder if we could just start off by you telling us a little bit about yourself. Oh, I just came from the synagogue, actually. Oh, <laughs> so what is, synagogue is that? That's Frank Rufus Synagogue. And it's very, very uh, practical because it's five minutes from your house. <laughs> Perfect. So tell me <laughs> so, more about this Frank Rufus Synagogue. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a very old synagogue. It's 100 and almost three years old. Hmm. It was built in 1916. And, but it's also, on the other hand, a very young synagogue because the people who are there mainly are young. Young being... 30s, mm. 20s, 30s, 40s. And sorry, just to clarify, this synagogue is in Berlin. This synagogue is in, <laughs> in Berlin, not only. It's in the neighborhood of Kreuzberg. Ah. And um, on Sunday, I met someone who, who said she was visiting the synagogue and she had to walk in through the neighborhood of Kreuzberg and she was shocked because she said, oh my God, there were so many Muslims and <laughs> Turkish people and Arab people. And I was like, yes, that's our neighborhood. So it's a very vibrant immigrant neighborhood. But as many neighborhoods who, that are like that, uh, it, it tends to attract young people also. And we thought um, about eight years ago, we thought if there are so many young people and we know there are many young Jews, there's young, young Israelis, young American Jews and young Jews from all over the world, basically. Why are they not in our synagogue? And let's take a step back. Who's the we? Who's the we? So... That's actually the next step. Okay. <laughs> the, the we um, we founded a non a nonprofit organization in 2015. Mm -hmm. um, but the people who are volunteering at the synagogue have been active since 2012. Wow. Basically, so we are a circle of volunteers. None of us is actually paid for what we do, <laughs> and we try to be more or less professional in our work. Um, and we basically revived the synagogue in the last few years. That was our goal to keep the synagogue alive, to revive it. And I dare say we succeeded in that. Although, of course, it's always a struggle and it's always challenging. But now the synagogue is full. Hmm. Full being a synagogue in Germany means we have 40 people maybe on a Sabbath morning, 30 to 50, yeah, mainly 40. And on a Friday night, uh, if we have the Shabbat dinners, we have between 60 and 90 people. Hmm. Wow. And for the kids program, 10 to 15 families. Wow. Usually. Can you tell me about the first time you walked into Frank Lufer Synagogue? I don't exactly remember the first time, but definitely. So we were living in this neighborhood here where you live now, yeah. where your studio is. We, you and your beautiful me, husband, me and Deco my Paris. Very handsome Israeli husband, Deco. 
um, without the baby <laughs> who only was born last year. So we lived here and we would never, ever have gone to that synagogue hmm. because it was gray. It was old. There were only old people. It was almost empty hmm. and it was kind of, nobody spoke even German. People were speaking Russian, some wow. German, no other languages. And we only literally went there because it was five minutes from our house. <laughs> <laughs> and then for a few years, we just went there from time to time. We also went to other synagogues just to get to know the community better. And one day on the second evening of Rosh Hashanah, we were at the synagogue and um, the, the wife of our, of our favorite rabbi told us, you know what, the synagogue, don't get too attached to the synagogue because it's going to die. It's not going to survive in the next few years. And we said, wow, it's, it was 2012. We said, wow, in 2012, a synagogue in Germany should not be closed or taken over by other groups or become a museum, a Jewish museum. A synagogue in 2012 should be able to survive. Wow. And, that's, and we were not active at all beforehand. We showed up every once in a while. It's amazing because you're talking about this moment, which I think is a very powerful moment where it's like you were sort of passive Jews. You were like, okay, for holidays and celebrations, we'll go to things. And suddenly in this moment, something changed and you became leaders. And I wonder if we could like hone in on this. What was it about this idea of the synagogue closing that motivated you to do this? It was a shock, a shocking moment of, wow. Uh, if not us, then wow. no one. And uh, also, if not now, then never. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and also, we had no clue what we were getting into. <laughs> had we known what this is going to lead to, we would probably not have done it. Because at the moment, in the last, I would say, three years, we've been investing almost every moment of our lives, every free moment. We have jobs, right? We have jobs, we have a baby, um, but everything. All our emotional and physical energy we're giving into the synagogue and what comes with hmm. all the community building, the travels, the uh, trying to find uh, donors for the synagogue, everything that costs a lot of energy. We love it. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to do it. So, yeah, I think it was that shock of, damn, if we don't get active, then yeah. this hundred, almost hundred years year old synagogue back then won't be there anymore. And is that still what motivates you? Because it sort of seems to me that like the synagogue is not at risk of dying anymore. Um, you know, you have managed to bring in, bring a lot of new people in. There's a lot of really innovative and interesting programming. So like what motivates you to continue to devote most of your waking hours um, <laughs> to, to this synagogue and to this project? Now it's just become our home, hmm. our community. Most of our friends are there. We have a wonderful cooperation with Base Berlin, which is perfectly motivating. <laughs> and it's so great to have you guys here in person yeah. in Berlin, in Kreuzberg. Um, yeah, it's also, there's no more why. Hmm. The why is not, now it's just a how. How do we do it? How can we make it happen? Hmm. And also the goals are changing every, every other week, every other month. We have, the goals are getting bigger. Hmm. So we started with only how can we manage to maintain a minion? Mm. How do we make sure every Sabbath morning we have a minion and there's actually Torah reading? Wow. That was the goal we started with. 
And how did you accomplish that first goal? That what what what, did, what was your plan of attack? The first plan of attack was how do you get young Jews to come to a synagogue, give them food. Uh. That didn't really that worked perfectly, but not like we planned because we didn't have a budget to give them food. <laughs> so people actually had to come to the synagogue. They had to bring their own food. We we did potluck. They had to bring their own food. They had to come early to set up, and they had to strong, stay longer to wow. to clean afterwards. But they came. They came. Wow. Every every month. We did it once a month and we're still doing that. That's basically our that's our core competence, the Friday night dinners. It's yeah. what we started with, what we will hopefully be doing forever. Um what changed over the years is that we have some private donors who said it would be very nice if there was a nice kosher catering for everybody. Mm. So now we have that. Nice. Um we have had that for over two years now. Nice. Um Uh, so, so that was the basic thing. We just bring people for Friday night dinners. And then obviously young people like to come to Friday night dinners, but they don't like to get up early on Saturday mornings. Yeah. Who cares about a minion <laughs> in a gray old synagogue in Kreuzberg? So um, we saw we had to do something about that. And we started with, with uh, Shurim on, on Shabbat morning. Wow. And interestingly, that attracted a lot of young people too. Huh. And people also started coming for uh, for prayer and for kiddush, of course. Yeah. Can you tell me more about the shirim? Because it's actually one of the things that I think is most um, it's most interesting and unique about the synagogue, and I think also says something about the Jewish population of Berlin itself. A lot of people who come to the shirim and who also lead the shirim would usually not attend synagogue. That's I think a really unique situation. It's not. Not orthodox people. It's not even specifically religious people. It's just people who who are intellectually interested in Jewish learning. Um, some people study something with Judaism, but many others don't. We have musicologists. We have uh, people from all backgrounds. Um, and we also decided that there doesn't have to be a rabbi who's teaching. Mm. It's lovely if there's a rabbi or a rabbinic student. But in general, everybody who is interested in some Jewish topic can teach. Hmm. So the musicologist I mentioned can teach about Jewish music. Um, somebody who is a good storyteller can teach about uh, about Jewish humor. Hmm. Uh, somebody who's more who wrote a book about uh, sexual topics can talk about sex and Judaism. Nice. And everybody can actually talk about something, but we try to stick as often as possible to the Parashat HaShavua, but with different topics and, and uh, basics. Why do it in the synagogue? You have all these people, you have all these ideas. Why not go outside the synagogue? But if I were to ask you that question now, why do it inside the synagogue rather than outside? Why fight all of the things that you have to fight when you could just go and start your own project elsewhere? Yeah, we can do that. We can start it somewhere <laughs> else. But one of our main purposes and goals is to maintain this building and to to create a space of Jewish life mm. in, in the synagogue, to really make it a platform, to make it a hub. Mm. To We wanted to revive it. We've revived it. Now it's full of life. And our daily purpose is to, to fill it mm. and also to give as many people as possible the opportunity to fill it themselves. Mm. So um, what has actually changed is that we've extended our, our circle a little bit more and we decided to do more things at other spaces also. Mm. Not because we, we changed the purpose of filling the synagogue, but because we also realized 
that um, a synagogue is more than a prayer space. It's a community center. And that needs to include community. The mm. community is also neighborhood. Mm. It's surroundings. And we need to kind of be vibrant into our sur surroundings. Um, for example, the, the tikkun. The tikkun yeah, Shavuot. tell us about the tikkun Lel Shavuot. The tikkun, which was actually the three tikkunim <laughs> that were done together. And it was kind of a neighborhood project. It was amazing. It was a cooperation of Base Berlin, Keshet Germany, the LGBTQI organization, and Frank Rufus Synagogue. So it was such a diverse, diverse, uh, a group of like diverse organizations. I don't think it would have been possible anywhere else hmm. than in Berlin. Maybe, maybe in Brooklyn. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, but even in Brooklyn, they tend to be concentrated in spaces. I think one of the beautiful things was that you had people wandering the streets at night. Yeah. It's something that I've really only seen in Jerusalem. Yeah. Um, uh, it's not a Jewish neighborhood. It's no. not a Jewish neighborhood at <laughs> all. Not. We've talked about this a lot, what it feels like to walk around uh, speaking Hebrew and wearing a kippah. Yeah. It's not something that usually happens here. Yeah. Nowhere in Berlin, but very little in, in Kreuzberg. And there is a discomfort. There is a discomfort. I mean, I'm saying this as someone who lives here and loves living here. There is yeah. an element of discomfort, but there's also a beauty to it. There's yeah. something really powerful about what it attracts. Um, since you talked about community space, uh, I've heard these rumors of a new Jewish community center that's going to be built in Kreuzberg. I wonder if you could comment on the rumors. I will be willing to comment on the rumors. <laughs> <laughs> so we realized in our daily work or in our monthly kiddushim and our holiday events where sometimes we have over 300 people in our tiny little synagogue, then we just don't have enough space. And already in 2016, we started talking to people, talking to polit politicians that we need more space. And specifically, we started with the idea of a Jewish kindergarten. Mm. Because as you guys know, it's very difficult to find <laughs> Jewish education, especially preschool education for, for Jewish children in Berlin. So that's the idea it started with. And we, we cooperated and we met with a, um, a German politician from the SPD, from the Berlin Labour Party. And um, by coincidence, he is uh, Palestinian-born. He's mm. German, but he moved here when he was five. Wow. And he was born in, in Palestine, in the, <laughs> in the Stachim, basically. <laughs> and um, so he's very supportive with Jewish projects. And together we created this idea of let's rebuild the old Frankrufer synagogue. Wow. Because what we use nowadays is just an appendix. It's the side wing of the old synagogue. Now in Can our you briefly just say what happened to the old synagogue? Yeah. Now in our synagogue, just to, to give you the, the feeling of the, of the dimensions, now we have about 200, 250 seats in our synagogue. The old synagogue had about 2,000. Wow. So it was a huge, enormous building. There was also a community center. Hmm. There was a soup kitchen. There was a social center. There was a youth center. Um, there was a, a wedding hall. Wow. Uh, apartments. Um, and as so many other other synagogues, it was it was burned in the in the Christ in Christmasnacht, mm. the pogrom night wow. in of 9th of November thirty eight, and the walls were still standing. It burned in the inside, mm. so there were no more furniture. And the Torah was gone, but there was a building. And then, terrible story: during the war, a, a bomb fell on the building. Wow! So what you could see after the war was just yeah ruins ruins of walls hmm. 
And as you can see in many areas in Berlin, it could have been rebuilt. It happened yeah. to many other buildings that were rebuilt, but we know that there was not really a Jewish, like not even, there was no Jewish community after the war. There yeah. were a few thousand people left, most of them preparing to leave yeah. what was left of Germany. Nobody wanted to stay here. Nobody could imagine at once there would be a vibrant Jewish community. So in yeah, the end of the 50s, it was just torn down, the ruins. Hmm. But the side wing was still there because they didn't, they didn't burn it. They only devastated the, the inside, but they didn't burn it wow. because they were afraid that the fire might, uh, might destroy the other buildings <laughs> around. Yeah, very crazy story that you have uh, in many, many other synagogues too. Yeah. And there was first Rosh Hashanah prayer in that building at, at Frank Luther Synagogue. Wow! Yeah, in 1945. 1945, right? which was, um, and pictures were taken by Robert Kappa, by the the famous war photographer. And we're very lucky that we have uh, copies of those of those pictures. They mm -hmm. hang in our kiddush room. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. So it's that's what we're trying to do. We also keep memory alive. Yeah. We keep tradition and we keep memory. And so you are in the process of working with this uh, Palestinian German politician, Raed Saleh on rebuilding this building, if I'm not mistaken. Exactly. We want to rebuild. So Raid Saleh's idea was it actually to uh -huh. rebuild the synagogue because we felt like, okay, it would be great to have a kindergarten. <laughs> uh, but he, he actually... And this was not coming from a, from a selfish perspective at all. You weren't thinking about any particular children who might live in your own home or... <laughs> Maybe a tiny little bit, but I have to say... I believe our daughter is now exactly one year old and she will probably not go to that kindergarten uh -huh. because it will take us a few years to, to build the whole project. Yeah. Um, so we started with the idea of a kindergarten and Raid Saleh said, yeah, why don't we rebuild the synagogue? Hmm. And um, we said, fantastic idea, but we don't, but we, what we need is not a huge prayer space. It was literally, it was a huge prayer space that is not needed nowadays, but we need a community center. We want a kosher cafe. We want the, the kindergarten I spoke about. We want a Beit Midrash, a mm. learning house. Um, we want art space, um, a co-living space for rabbinic students and artists. Um, so we want all kinds of things um, that, that should happen in the building that looks somewhat similar to the, to the old synagogue. Mm. This is the goal we are, we've been working on now for almost two years. Um, and right now we just talking to everybody about it and um, <laughs> yeah, making the plans of what should actually happen inside. So what we're starting to do now is that we, we're traveling Europe and are visiting other community centers to get inspired and to learn. Amazing. Yeah, because there's so many things, I think, that mistakes that other people already made that we don't have to make. Yeah. Because no, we're going to make new mistakes yes, for sure. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. We, we pick our own mistakes. <laughs> It is, it is also special that we don't get paid because it changes the atmosphere of the mm. whole thing. Nobody can tell us what to do. Yeah. Um, so we have to figure out figure it out <laughs> ourselves. We don't get a, get a list of... We don't get a to-do list in the morning. We have to pick our own to-do list. We have to feel the pulse, the vibe. We have to see what is needed. Yeah. And uh, doing this is one of our biggest tasks. What is actually... If we build something like this, a community center that we want to be a place for Jews in Berlin and or in Germany, 
what needs to be in it so people actually go there. Wow. I spoke to a few people who told me about community centers in other cities and they said, oh, I live there, basically. I used to <laughs> live there. I went there every day. And this is something I want people to feel like. This is my home. Wow. I just go there. I know something is something great is happening there every day. So I just go there without even checking what's going on because I know something is going to welcome me there. Wow. You know, one of the things that I think you talk a lot about filling this community center with, uh, specifically with the Beit Midrash, is Torah. And I believe you have some Torah to share with us. Yeah, I brought some Torah <laughs> that was really inspiring to me, some a, a portion. Okay, can because, you tell us about it? <laughs> <laughs> because you mentioned at the beginning that suddenly through that moment, um, when we feel the obligation for the community, we became leaders. Hmm. And had somebody told us in back in 2012 that we're going to be the leaders uh, on the board of the synagogue, on the board of our own uh, nonprofit organization, um, <laughs> leading, being the representatives of a synagogue all over the world, basically, when we travel, we would probably have said, no, no way, we don't do that. Yeah, And so when I read the, the portions that I brought you, um, I felt very, um, how can I say, I felt sympathy with a Jewish leader who uh, in, in the Torah is also very troubled wow. with the task he's getting. So uh, Nina, why don't you uh, tell us, uh, read from the portion and tell us where it's coming from uh, that you're sharing with us today. So it's a it's a portion where uh, where Moshe where Moses is getting ta a task hmm. from from God. Hmm. He's getting the task to to lead the people hmm. through the desert, and he feels like he feels like he can't do it. And why? Because he doesn't have the main qualities. What he thinks are the main qualities of a leader, hmm. which is speaking to people, um, having having an open eye, uh, being a representative being somebody to look up to. He has a lot of doubts. Hmm. I think most leaders have a lot of doubts. And hmm. my belief is that that the better leaders have doubts. Wow. Um, and what, what are some of Moses' doubts? So um, I, I can read, I can yeah, read a little please. bit of um, the paragraphs that were so meaningful to me. So it's from Exodus um, 4.10. Um, but Moses said to the Lord, Please, O Lord, I have never been a man of words either in times past or now, that you have spoken to your servant, I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. Hmm. So he says that actually a leader would have to be able to speak eloquently yeah. and uh, convincing. And the Lord said to him, who gives man speech, who makes him dumb or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go and I will be with you as you speak and will instruct you what to say. And what's the answer? What's Moses' answer? This, this phrase is just, uh, it's, it stroke me. But he said, please, O oh Lord, make someone else your agent. Wow. So he really <laughs> wants to get out of the task somehow. Um, so God tries to find ways of convincing Moshe to, to actually speak to the people and to, to lead them. So he gives him support. He gives him a helper. Um, the Lord became angry. First of all, he gets yeah. impatient. He's like, oh, yeah, I chose this guy and now he refuses. Yeah. Uh, the Lord became angry with Moses, Moses and he said, there is your brother, Aaron the Levite. He, I know, speaks readily. Even now he's, he's setting out to meet you. 
and he will be happy to see you. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. I will be with you and with him as you speak and tell both of you what to do. And he shall speak for you to the people. Thus he shall serve as your spokesman with you playing the role of God to him. Wow. Wow. What strikes you so much about this passage? So when you think about a leader, mm -hmm. I actually had this discussion with someone a few weeks ago. What is a leader? Um, so you think of something perfect, of somebody who's so convincing and so good, good that you just want to follow him or her. And we see here that that is not the case. Hmm. Not only does uh, Moshe have all these deficits, all these points where he's not able to express what he wants to say, for example. But also he has so many doubts. He doesn't even want to stand there. Hmm. The last thing he wants is stand in front of the people and tell them what to do. I, what were some of your doubts when you first started doing this? Um, so I, for example, when I started working, volunteering in the synagogue, I could not speak in front of people. Hmm. Wow. I can't even imagine that. Like anyone who has met, anyone who's listening and has met Nina Peretz, I want you to imagine a version of Nina Peretz that is uncomfortable speaking in front of people. Absolutely. I'm still not the, per the perfectly comfortable person speaking in front of a lot of people. But I also, because of this tension, I also like it. Wow. I like it because I overcame this fear. Hmm. But I overcame it through Aaron, through the help. Wow. Uh, who was your Aaron? A lot of people were my Aaron. I did some training. I got support from different Jewish networks. Wow. Um, obviously, my husband, Deco, who always sits next to me somewhere. And whenever I don't know what to say or my head is empty because I'm just too nervous, then he just whispers and tells me what I shouldn't forget to say. Wow. You forgot, you forgot to thank the rabbi. <laughs> thank the rabbi. <laughs> Did you welcome the guests? <laughs> Something like that. Or just yeah. a person who believes in you. Yeah. And then also what, what I find very interesting here is that God says, I made you like this on purpose. Hmm. He said, who, who do you think makes people how, the way they are? Yeah. It's me. It's God. You're actually meant to not be perfect. Yeah. You're not meant to be this uh, super selfish, self-conscious uh, person who stands there like a, <laughs> like a boss. You're yeah. meant to be not so sure about what you're doing. Do you think you and Deco were fated to do this? This is a very strong word to use. <laughs> strong and fresh <laughs> What word would you use? You know, I think sometimes our secret is just that we... We stick with this. We just stay on board. Yeah. Um, and this is the only thing that really crazily qualifies us to, to, to know. <laughs> because there were so many moments where we were, we were up to just leaving the whole project. But it's not a project anymore. It's our life. So we can't leave it. Wow. It's almost impossible. There were so many moments where we actually wanted to quit or we wanted to stop that whole work um one of them for example we had a friday night dinner there was a lot of work to organize it it, it was a delegation from israel to the wow. embassy and it was many years ago so we were very proud that this is happening and wow 
an Israeli delegation wants to have Shabbos dinner with us. So we had a talk with them and a dinner and it was very intense and very beautiful. And of course, nobody from the delegation came the other morning for prayer because it was a delegation. They had a plan, they had a schedule. But the only thing that our Gabai, the head of the community, had to say was, so very nice, you did this dinner, had a nice party yesterday. So where are all those people? <laughs> nobody came to the nobody came to the minion. It's quite sad. Instead of acknowledging anything of of what we did. Wow. So it, and the the bad thing, the worst thing about it was, it was at Kiddush, wow. during Kiddush, at the official speech in front of everyone, just shaming me who yeah. organized the thing. And so it was just too much for me in that moment. Um, the only thing I could do was push back my chair, take my bag, jump up, and leave the synagogue. Wow. And I was absolutely convinced I would never come back. And uh, what, what brought you back? What brought me back was <laughs> a my then boyfriend now husband followed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that was motivating, and also someone else wow. from the older congregants walked ran ran after me. Adam. Oh wow! He ran after me um, to check on me. Wow. Uh, I was standing outside crying and waiting for for Deckel to come, and um, someone else uh, who used to be on the board of the synagogue wrote me a long email afterwards. Wow. And um, I don't know exactly how it happened, but also the guy who said what he said um, excused afterwards. I think he also wrote me an email wow. and said that he's sorry. And that was actually a turning point because on that point, we decided that we can actually demand things. Wow. That we can actually start from, from asking nicely if we can do something to demanding, guys, we only stay here and we only stay active if... Wow. And our demand at that moment was that um, one uh, one of us becomes member of the board, becomes a goodbye. Mm. And that was Jonathan, who is still goodbye today. Amazing. Yeah, and that was like our foot, our, our, our in. You know, it's so interesting because we talk about this growth in confidence that you had, where it's like you started in this place where you weren't even sure what you wanted to do. You were afraid to speak in front of people. You weren't sure if you're going to keep going to sort of the place you are now. In a lot of ways, it parallels Moses's journey because Moses goes from this guy who doesn't believe he can do anything, um, who thinks that he's totally, you know, he's like, I, I can't, who am I to do all these things? And then there are these seminal moments where eventually he becomes the man who regularly argues with God. And God will is going to want to destroy the Jewish people a couple of times over. Spoiler alert, if you haven't read the whole Torah, but uh, he's going to want to, destroy the Jewish people. And Moses argues with him. He stands up to him. He says, no, you called me into this mission and now we're going to finish it. Um, and I feel like there's uh, some parallels there to you where it's like, you didn't necessarily imagine that this is the journey you would go on. But now that you're in it, you like, you'll be damned if you're not going to be the one fighting for it. Yeah. To you're going <laughs> yeah, to see it through to the end. Yeah. yeah. Um, also, I, I just want to say, I don't want to compare myself to, to Moses in any way. <laughs> it's just some, some of the things... I compared I, you to Moses, not you. So you're, you're fine. You're everything. Also, yeah. Flattering and shaming. <laughs> but um, um, no, some of the things I read, like you read about him in, in the Torah, and it, are just inspiring hmm. to see that you can actually be the way he is at the beginning. And also until the end, he's never 
never the perfect leader. Yeah. There's a lot of doubts. There's a lot of fighting with his master, with, yeah. with the Lord. Um, and eventually he's not, he doesn't even make it to the, to the land. Wow. He doesn't fulfill the journey. And that is something that Deckel said a few, a few weeks ago. Deckel turned 40 and he said, you know what? And by the point that the building actually stands and the whole project is running and we have that community center to be, to be really productive, I would have to resign <laughs> because then we're not the young people anymore. And if you want to become establishment but still f stay fresh and innovative yeah. actually you have to resign when you become old you have to bring the new people in wow and uh, this is like can can we actually can we do that can we push this whole thing forward can we um work so hard for the synagogue for many years and then not be the leaders anymore hmm. it doesn't necessarily mean you have to step aside you just have to make room yeah And I think there's actually a beautiful form of leadership where it's like, you know, you practice Tzimtzum, this removing yourself from the space to allow God in, um, but also removing yourself from the space to allow other voices in. And I actually think it's something you and Deckel do beautifully, where you really have, I think one of the hardest things to do uh, in the Jewish nonprofit world is to build a supportive volunteer team around yourself. And you have an amazing team of volunteers. I think of that for me, that's the most impressive thing you've built. That's you've actually the community. That is the community uh, yeah. because everybody's kind of volunteering. I mean, there are some people who just come for prayer, but most of the people do something. Yeah. They, they, they will somehow get involved. There's obviously the people who have some kind of official tasks in the, in the, um, in the nonprofit organization, in the Verein, in the association. Obviously, there are people who have official tasks and they do more because you have to. Just yesterday, we had our membership assembly um, and Frauke, the, the treasurer, presented the calculations, the maths, the, uh, um, what do you call it, the financial report of yeah. the two years, the last two years. I mean, she put so many hours in that. That's just <laughs> a lot of work. Um, but then there are so many people who, they don't just come to the Friday night dinners. What I mentioned before, they come early, they set up, they clean up. They try, they, they, they ask us before, how can we help? What is needed? Hmm. And um, there's not only the, the Friday night dinners, there's also the, the huge events that we have for, for holidays. Yeah. When we have a Purim event, for example, there's first of all a kids program, two, two hours, that is organized by the parents, by the parents of the kids who yeah. are coming. And then everything has to be changed, the whole setting, because we only have one room for <laughs> events. So that we have half an hour to clean up, to uh, reorganize the room, to set up the kiddush, comes prayer, and then everybody comes in again to eat. Wow. So the people who came, let's say, at three to set up the kids program, some of them even stay until the bitter end, until 10 to, to clean the room afterwards. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of, uh, there's uh, uh, in the Halotcha, which is in the Book of Numbers mm -hmm. in Bamidbar, Uh, there's this portion where the people, the Jews, they're complaining again, and Moses is all upset. And uh, he says to God, God, I can't do it. It's too much for me. So God says, appoint 70 leaders from amongst the camp and help them. They will help share to sh shoulder the load of the responsibility. And there's a beautiful comment uh, commentary from Rashi on this portion where Rashi says, Moses was like a flame. And he lit 70 other candles. And it didn't decrease his own flame. His own flame stayed the same. Um, but the amount of light they were able to bring, the amount of work they were able to do really increased. 
Um, and I think that's what you and Deco have done so beautifully, which is you've lit all these candles. You have caused these flames to grow so that there is a bright Jewish spot emanating from Kreuzberg of all places. Uh, Sometimes the, 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 the very burning very hot. Like, <laughs> yeah. Sometimes it's very challenging to keep all those people together. And I have to say, I never felt like I am the person who lit everything. Mm. We are, we've always been a group. Wow. We were just a very small group at the beginning and then it became bigger and bigger and also changes because we have a lot of fluctuation in, in Berlin. We have people who come, people who go. Yeah. Um, so the, the portion you just mentioned uh, where Moses assigned 70 leaders that also spoke to me wow and um, I even brought one piece <laughs> with me <laughs> uh, do, you, do you want to sh- uh, briefly share a bit about the uh, the second text that you yeah. want to share with us it's it's from Exodus 18 18 13 um, and it's where um, where Moses father-in-law asks him why do you do all this alone what I liked about this text is that Yitro even dares Moses. He actually mm. criticizes him really in a harsh way. He says, uh, the thing you are doing, that's, that's from Exodus 18, the thing you are doing is not right. Mm. You will surely wear yourself out. Um, and these people as well. For the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. So if I was a very self-assured, motivated leader and somebody told me, dude, you just can't do it. You're, too, you're not strong enough for all this. Um, I could also be upset. I could be angry or I could reject that guy. Who is yeah. that guy anyways? He's my, he's my father-in-law. <laughs> Annoying. <laughs> um, but he, he says, yeah, Moses is open. He's open to the counseling. So Yitro really becomes his um, advisor, wow. his counselor. He also doesn't say, I help you. I do it for you. He says, you have to appoint people. Who can help you? Wow. And uh, this means giving away power, because beforehand everybody had to come to Moses so he could judge. Yeah, it was about uh, having trials. Actually, people came with disputes, and he had to say yes, no, you are right, you're not right. But now he just spreads the task, which ha- helps him to to deal with many more cases. Him and his is uh, the other judges, um, and uh, yeah, it says uh, said these over them as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Hmm. So it becomes an efficient functioning system. Yeah. But somebody has to hold it together. Yeah. And that's what, what Moses does. And that's, I think, in a lot of ways, what the Frankelufer Synagogue is, which is you have an amazing team of volunteers, and they are all important, and they are all vital, and they are all chiefs of thousands or hundreds or fifties or tens. Um, but you and Deco really hold them all together. And uh, I don't think any of them would uh, uh, would not admit that uh, if asked. And I, uh, I think we're all really grateful for the amazing work you and Deco do to build this community, revive this synagogue, um, and really hold the community together in a lot of ways. And uh, on, the, on the one hand, we struggle as much as Moses and any other mm. leaders. But on the other hand, it's also very important for us that it's fun. Hmm. Most of the time we love going there. <laughs> How do you keep it fun? Um, so first of all, the people are friendly with each other. So we, we, we also help each other a lot. We spend time with, with each other also out, outside the synagogue. Um, 
also now that we have family, it became so much more meaningful to have mm. community. When we celebrated the naming ceremony for our for our daughter, Ronja, um, we invited a few friends. We just told a few people, our closest friends, to come. We had 80 people in the synagogue. Wow. And they all were just so happy with us, together with us. And Ronja is a, a baby who's growing up in the synagogue. Wow. And that makes it even more meaningful. Yeah. And then, yeah, just the feeling that it really makes sense what we're doing <laughs> makes us doing that makes us do that also with a lot of motivation wow obviously and then that you guys came i mean (laughs) (laughs) ah come on stop stop no i I must say i mean we've been working together for over three years now working having fun together and the fact that you believe in the same thing or in similar things um is just crucial it's very important and that you that the people become your friends. Well, it's our pleasure, and we are grateful to be your friends, and we're grateful that you came and joined us uh, for the podcast uh, this fine late afternoon. <laughs> um, I mean, is there any other words of Torah you'd like to share with the folks back home before we part? Well, absolutely. If not us, then no one, or then who? And if not now, then never. And we should definitely check on the babies who are playing out there now. <laughs> yeah. They've been so silent know, while they're recording. I know, they've been very good. That's, that's, mother, that's mother Torah. Uh, Nina, thank you so much for joining us. It really has been a pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much, Jen. Thank you for joining us on this special episode of Torah Curious. Big thanks to Nina Peretz for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Nina and the work of Frank Luther Synagogue, you can Google one of the myriad articles about her, or you can check out their Facebook page at Friends of Frank Luther. Torah Curious is a project of Base Berlin, the home of a rabbinic couple in Berlin's Kreuzberg neighborhood. Special thanks goes out to Rabbi Rebecca Blady, Valentin Lutzet for the cover art, John Earl for everything, Alex Segura and Takayasuzawa for the really cool intro music, and our friend in the bay makes this all possible. Stay tuned for another episode that'll drop in two weeks. In the meantime, keep learning and stay curious.